youth groups really showing out and uh, helping the community. Um, Scotty, if any of you are on our Sunday school Facebook page, he was uh, posting pictures and I think, and I haven't got a chance to look at it yet, I think he dropped a, a news, either a news article or a, uh, was it an article or was it actually a video? Okay. Okay. Well, y'all might want to check that out if you're on the group me. Um, they also said they have an amazing speaker and that he is getting a lot of help himself from the speaker, so be ready for him to come back fired up. <laughs> That's what we like. So, uh, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to come out and worship you. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to worship. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for paving the way for the mission trip to Macon. We thank you for blessing there. We ask that you continue to bless, stir hearts and minds. Lord, please just empower the ones that went and give them a safe trip home, Lord. We ask that you just be with these services, Lord. Give me the words that you would have me to speak. It doesn't do the people any good to hear from me, Lord. They've got to hear from you. So I ask that you just use me, speak through me, give me clarity. Let everything that we do here tonight glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I apologize for us not having any singing tonight. I would do something about that, but that really wouldn't be a blessing for anybody. So, Unless anybody here wants to sing. Does anybody want to sing? Cole, you want to sing? Okay. <laughs> I was going to let you, man. Well, we're going to be back in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. You'll turn your Bibles there. Uh, this is going to be a, probably a little reminiscent of uh, Wednesday night with Israel because I've got a lot of scriptures to turn to and we probably ain't going to get through but two verses. So, But we're going to start out verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and read uh, through verse 19, and then we'll come back and see how far we get unpacking some of this. 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of the glory of God resteth upon you, and their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's affairs. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and at first begin at us. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous 
scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So back to verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Well, if we put this into uh, context, we're looking at A.D. 62-63. So this is uh, probably the middle part of Nero's reign. And a lot of people, when they read this, they instantly think of the fire uh, Nero set, or well, Nero blamed the Christians for a fire that burned out a big portion of Rome. Now, most of the ancient historians of the time say that Nero set the fire or had the fire set himself and then used Christians as a scapegoat. But then he spent the next part of his reign brutally murdering Christians in various and sundry ways. But the only problem was this, was that the fire happened in A.D. 64, and First Peter was written in A.D. 62 or 63. So <clears throat> it's possible that it's referring to that and that the Holy Spirit was warning of things to come. But I think that it's also possible that he could be referring to um, Daniel 3. If you'll turn with me over to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to go through... Uh, look at one of the most famous tests of faith in the Old Testament and one that any Jew would be intimately familiar with. And we're going to talk about the three Hebrew children and the fiery furnace. Now, what I think is amazing about the book of Daniel is there are so many great stories in here, particularly before you get into the uh, prophecies at the end of it, You've got these four Hebrew young men who were brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's palace because they were good looking and they were healthy and he wanted to show them off as his trophies from his conquest. So he brings them in there. And what's amazing to me is that the scope of Daniel covers three kings. So at the end of the book, those four men can stand before the last king and said, there's been three kings that we've been brought before and we're still here. Each one of them was tried in a different way by a different king. Uh, but here, we know the story that Nebuchadnezzar had built a great golden image of himself and that at a certain time of the day when they played the music, everybody was supposed to fall down and worship the image. And of course... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not do so. So they were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake unto them. We're going to be looking at, we're going to start chapter 3 and verse 14. Let's back up to 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast that same hour into the midst of the fiery furnace, and who is that God that shall deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of the hand, out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now those are bold words, and I love it because regardless of the outcome, these three men weren't going to fold. They stood tall and they said, it doesn't matter. If God chooses to save us, then we shall rejoice and he'll deliver us out of your hand. If God chooses to let us perish, we'll die and God will deliver us out of your hand. It doesn't matter to us. God is still going to be God at the end of this, and we're going to be out of your hand. But, as we know from the story, they came out of the fiery furnace with not a trace of smoke on them. At a point in time, the king looked in, and they saw one that looked like uh, the Son of God walking in the fire with them. So, I believe that this would certainly line up with Peter giving this as an example to the ones he was writing to. But ultimately, I think it's probably a combination of the two. I think Peter is drawing off of one of the most famous tests of faith in the Old Testament to prepare a people for what he knows is to come. He knew it was coming because Jesus told him it was coming. If you'll look in John chapter 15, you'll see that Jesus told all the disciples that it was coming. John chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will, also keep, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. So he that hateth me hateth my father. If I had not done against him among them the works which I had done, no other man had they not had sin, but now they have both seen and hateth both me and the father. So Jesus is telling them, because I exposed their sin, they're going to hate me. Because you're preaching my gospel, they're going to hate you. The master is not, or the servant is not greater than the master. So Peter was told with the rest of the disciples to expect this. 
and he was preparing the people of what was to come. You see, there's a lie that we have all been told. I guarantee you, you've been told this lie at one point in time, and I suspect you have heard it from the pulpit at least once. The lie is, God will never put on you more than you can bear. How many of you have heard that lie? You know why it's a lie? Because the Bible is full of stories about people getting put on them more than they can bear. I'll give you an example. Samuel 17 says that David slew a lion and a bear. Okay, Cole, you're probably a head taller than David was at the time. He was kind of a small guy. We don't know exactly how tall he was, but when Samuel showed up to anoint David, he looked at Eliab and saw he was a big strapping youth and thought, well, this guy, he's going to be the next king. But God said no. And they finally ended up with David, the last of the picking. All right, so... If I was to bring Cole up here and tell you all that I got a line from the Buffalo Park back here in the back, and uh, we're going to get Cole to run take that meat out of the lion's mouth, and we're going to get the fight on, how many of you is going to put your money on Cole? Okay, that would be more than Cole could bear, wouldn't it? I think that would be a little more than any of us could bear. That is why the Lord puts on us more than we could bear, so that we will turn to Him. There's, three, there's a couple of reasons that God may put more on you than you can bear. First of all, He may put more on you than you can bear because He wants to build up your faith. Just in this story, David kills the lion, then he kills the bear. That was all in preparation for when he was to fight the giant and ultimately to be king and fight fight a host of other enemies. So everything, every step that David took when the Lord put on him more than he could bear, if you read on after he says that he slew the lion and the bear, verse 37 said, the Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and the same Lord will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So God may put on you more than you could bear just to get you through it so that you have faith for the next trial that's going to come. Another reason that God may put more on you than you can bear is because you may need to be broken. Unfortunately, we are a prideful people. Psalms 138.6 says, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. So to clear that up a little bit, it means that God keeps his distance from those that are not yet broken. He won't draw near to you in your pride and arrogance. If you are so full of yourself and so self-reliant that you can't lean on him, that you don't need him, then it's going to be hard to clo draw close to the Lord. So a lot of times the Lord will bring in circumstances more than you can bear to draw you closer to him, to get you to the end of yourself so that he can draw near unto you. But as I was saying, in uh, A.D. 62 and 63, persecution of the Christians hadn't really ramped up just yet. 
63, we did have the uh, death of James, but we're not sure if that happened before or after uh, Peter's letter. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, he was preaching. He stayed in Jerusalem preaching, and they wanted to shut him up, so they told him that he was going to have to deny Christ, and they took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Well, man, that was right up James' alley. Now, first of all, you got to picture James. James wasn't on board with the whole thing until after Jesus was resurrected. James wasn't a disciple. I mean, you can imagine how James felt when his older brother Jesus is doing all these things. You know, that's Jesus. We grew up with Jesus. He's not the Messiah. But then after Jesus was resurrected, all of a sudden James comes on board and he became on board with a passion. So they bring him up on the pinnacle to deny Christ and James lets it rip. According to church tradition, he gave the gospel out right there on top of the temple. And the crowd started chanting for Jesus and they threw him off the top of the temple. Okay, James falls and the fall doesn't kill him. It breaks his legs. So on his knees, he's still proclaiming the gospel, and he tells them, and he prays and asks the Lord to forgive them because they know what, not what they're doing, just like Jesus did. So they start stoning him, and he's still not dying. And he's still praying. He's still praying for the people that are killing him. And finally, one guy hits him with a club and puts him out of his misery. But that goes to show you what the fervor was of the New Testament church. Now, we don't know for sure if that had happened before Peter's letter, but what we do know is that most of the persecution was confined to Rome at this time. There was some in the outline, but there really wasn't that many deaths yet. Christians commonly suffered beatings, shunning, and discrimination for their faith. Now, some of that may sound just a little bit familiar. I don't know if y'all realize it or not, but we're fast slipping into a time in America where Christians are starting to face some discrimination. There's been case after case after case of people being drag, drug into court for their religious convictions. Uh, Jack Phillips with a Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado has already been to the Supreme Court won his case, went back home, and was immediately targeted and sued again. Then I was reading today that there was a, uh, <clears throat> another baker in Oregon. They went up and they was fixing to get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kicked it back to Oregon for review, which basically means Oregon, you messed up. You got another chance to fix this right before we straighten it up. And they referred them to the Masterpiece Cake Shop suit. Okay, so these folks go back. Uh, everybody is expecting that the suit will be overturned. But here's the thing. They've already lost their business. They're, they're out of business. They couldn't afford to stay open, not working. So even if they win, when they go back, they've got very little chance of recouping from their losses. 
the lady I was uh, listening to, it was Stacy on the right. Uh, she's in Missouri, and uh, she said, send them down here to Missouri. We'll buy some cakes and help them get them started back up. But that's the kind of thing that we're going to start facing. That's, that's the initial beginnings of it. But what else is going on in the world today? Let me just share with you a little bit about what's going on in the world. Every month, on average, 219 Christians are arrested, detained, imprisoned without trial every month. 219. 105 churches or Christian religious buildings come under attack or are burned each month on average. 345 Christians are killed for their faith, not just killed, but killed for their faith every month in the world today on average. So that means while we're enjoying the freedom that we had to go to work today and come home and then come to church to worship, Seven of our brothers and sisters were killed, were uh, imprisoned without trial. Three to four church buildings were attacked or burned. And 11 of our brothers and sisters were killed for their faith. That puts things in a little bit different perspective, doesn't it? This, this evening, I've got a little video that I wanted to show you. It's about two minutes long and... Uh, I don't know a whole lot about the uh, company that put it out, but it's got some really good information in it. And uh, at this time, I'd like to watch that if you've got it ready, Eric. flip your phone over to the notes, I would like to give you a list of the top 10 countries um, in the world so you can put them on your prayer list. <clears throat> so this is the top 10 countries that's most dangerous to live in for Christians. Number one is North Korea. Christianity is listed as the number one enemy of the state in North Korea. 
For three generations, everything in this isolated country has focused on idolizing and leading the leading Kim family. They are taught to worship the Kim family. Christians are seen as hostile elements in society and must be eradicated. There was hope that new diplomatic efforts in 2018 would mean the lessening of pressure and violence against Christians, but so far that's not been the case. In fact, reports indicate that local authorities are increasing incentives for anyone who exposes a Christian in their community. If Christians are discovered, not only are they deported to labor camps or even killed on the spot, their families to the fourth generation share their fate as well. Communal worship is non-existent. Daring to meet other Christians for worship is a risky feat that must be done in utmost secrecy. Yet Open Doors estimates the number of Christians in North Korea to be 300,000 strong. Believers who are defying the unjust regime and following Jesus. Could you imagine what 300,000 Christians worshiping in those situ those conditions could do here in America? Uh, could you imagine the power that the Lord has to be doling out on those people? Number two is Afghanistan. Christianity is not permitted to exist in Afghanistan. It's once again a close second behind North Korea in the 2019 World Watch List. An Islamic State, by constitution, the country does not permit any faith other than Islam to exist. To convert to a faith outside of Islam is tantamount to treason because it's seen as a betrayal of family, tribe, and country. Very often there is only one possible outcome for the exposed and caught Christians, and that's death. In Afghanistan, converts are considered literally insane to leave Islam. As a result, some may end up in psychiatric hospitals and have their homes destroyed. In addition to communal pressure, the security situation continues to deteriorate due to the influx of foreign militants who have pledged allegiance to ISIS. The radical Islamic Taliban has also increased strength and at least half of Afghanistan's 34 provinces are either ruled or contested by the Taliban. Afghan Christians, mostly with a Muslim background, are hiding, are in hiding as much as possible. Now one thing that I did love about this website is you can go on here and you can hear personal testimonies, you can hear personal stories, read stories of what these people are going through. In Somalia, Christians are listed as high-value targets. Estimates suggest that 99% of Somalis are Muslims and any minority religions are heavily persecuted. The Christian community is small and under constant threat of attack. In fact, persecution of Christians almost always involves violence. Additionally, in many rural areas, Islamic militant groups like Al-Shabaab are the de facto rulers who regard Christians with a Muslim background as high-value targets, often killed on the spot when discovered. In recent years, the situation appears to have worsened. Islamic militants have intensified their hunt for people who are Christian and in a position of leadership. An attempt to reopen the church in Hargatius, Somaliland, failed 
the government was forced to shut it down due to pressure from the local Islamic population. In the World Watch List 2019 reporting period, Christians in Somalia remained so vulnerable to attacks by the Islamic militants that in the interest of security, open doors could publish no specific examples of persecution. So like these others where they've posted stories, they don't have any stories of Somalia because just putting their story out there could draw attention to the Christian and get them killed. So they can't even tell you the story of the folks in Somalia. Libya, number four. Now I won't go through reading all of these, but the majority of them have a Muslim background. This is a Muslim country. I've always found it interesting that Jesus told his followers to die for the world and Muhammad's followers told his, or Muhammad told his followers to kill for the world and are in the same area. I don't know it. I've always just kind of found that odd that that worked out that way. But most of these countries are Islamic. Libya is, <clears throat> they face abuse and violence for their decision to follow Christ. The country is also home to many migrant workers who have been attacked, sexually assaulted, and detained, which can even be worse if your Christian faith is discovered. And again, it may result in death. Number five, Pakistan. Under Pakistan's notorious blasphemy laws, Christians continue to live in daily fear that they will be accused of blasphemy, which can carry a death sentence. The most well-known example of these laws is the case of Asia Bibi. After sitting on death row for more than 10 years, the Christian wife and mother was acquitted of blasphemy charges in October. However, her life is still in grave danger from the radical Islamists that have gained increasing political power in the world's sixth largest country. Number six, Sudan. Sudan also has been ruled as an Islamic state. The country offers limited rights for religious minorities and places heavy restrictions on freedom of speech or press. The last year has been difficult for Christians in many ways. There have been many arrests. Many churches have been demolished and others are on an official list waiting for demolition. Many Christians are attacked indiscriminately in areas like the Nuba Mountains, where the conflict is between government forces and the rebel groups. Christian converts for Islam are especially targeted for persecution. To keep from being discovered, converts from Islam will often refrain from raising their children as Christians because they're afraid the children might inadvertently reveal their parents' faith. Can you imagine being a Christian and knowing that that's the one true way, that it's the truth, and being afraid to share it with your children because you're afraid they might tell somebody. I can't imagine how horrible that would be. Now this next country I had to look up. I didn't know where it was. 
I'd never heard of it. Number seven on the list is Eritrea. E-R-I-T-R-E-A. It's just north of, uh, or just east of Sudan. Just north of Ethiopia, right on the coast. During the 2019 World Watch List reporting period, government security forces conducted many house-to-house raids and imprisoned hundreds of Christians in inhumane conditions, including small shipping containers in scorching heat. Protestants in particular faced serious problems in accessing community resources, especially social services provided by the state. Christians from non-traditional church groups, such as evangelicals, faced the harshest persecution. In 2018, Eritrea embraced an end to the hostility with both Ethiopia and Somalia. How that agreement will play out for the situation of Christians remains to be seen. This extreme pressure and state-sanctioned violence are forcing some Christians to flee that country often called Africa's North Korea and seek asylum. Number eight, Yemen. An ongoing civil war in Yemen has created one of the worst humanitarian crises in recent history, making an already difficult nation for Christians to live in even harder. The chaos of war has enabled radical groups to take control over some regions of Yemen, and they have increased persecution of Christians. Even private worship is risky in some parts of the country. Christians are suffering from the general humanitarian crisis in the country, but Yemeni Christians are additionally vulnerable since emergency relief is mostly distributed through Islamic organizations and local mosques, which are allegedly discriminating against those who are not considered to be pious Muslims. Number nine, Iran. It's illegal to convert and it's illegal to preach in Iran. Of course, Iran is governed by Islamic law, which means the rights and job possibilities for Christians are heavily restricted. The government sees them as an attempt by Western countries to undermine Islam and the Islamic regime of Iran. Leaders of groups of Christian converts have been arrested, prosecuted, and have received long prison sentences for crimes against the national security. In December, to crack down on Christians sharing their faith, Iranian police arrested 100 Christians in one week, making a blatant statement to both Christians and Muslims. Iran is also infamous for its prisons and inhumane treatment of Christians in places like Evan Prison, where well-known church pastor Yusuf is serving a 10-year sentence. And finally, number 10, in the world's second most populous country, India ranks as number 10. Christians saw unprecedented persecution on numerous fronts from both the state and the Hindu society. For the first time, India enters the top 10 on the world watch list, jumping one spot from no, number 11 in 2017. Home to more, a billion, more than a billion people, even an incremental rise in persecution yields exponential impact. 
Since the current ruling party took power in 2014, Hindu extremists have fueled a crackdown on Christian house churches and have attacked believers with impunity. So if you run out of anything to pray for this week, there's your 10 countries to pray for. Uh, I believe it was eight. Um, Iran is Hindu and uh, North Korea is psycho. <laughs> North Korea is psycho. <laughs> yeah, they... Uh, they think that Kim Jong-un is a god, so that's it's about as crazy as it comes. India is Hindu. North Korea. I don't really know what you call North Korea. They're idolaters, but I'm not sure what the correct term for that is when you worship the head of state. Eight out, eight out of ten, I believe, are Muslim. Hmm? Well, they don't worship Buddha. They worship the Kim family. The, the Japanese worship their ancestors, but are used to. Eight out of ten. India, India, and North Korea. I think Christianity is still the largest growing. If Islam hasn't passed it yet, I don't have those statistics. Yeah. humanism or agnostic uh, a lot of people that are we classify as atheists are actually agnostic they they believe that there's a god but we can't know him or islam is growing fast it's one of the top i would say it's in the top five but i don't i don't have the exact stats on it i know worldwide it is growing exponentially. It is sweeping continents.
Uh, if you think about the way things have fallen in North Korea, that is the ultimate end result of uh, Darwinism. You know, it's survival of the fittest. If you got stuff and I want it and I can take it, then there's nothing wrong with me taking it. And that's pretty much what the Kim family has done. And everybody else just deals with it because they're not the fittest. Uh, it's what we've got in North Korea, that's the end result of Darwinistic atheism. It is, like Nathan said, it's the mantra that's being spread in America right now. Anybody have anything else? Well, I wanted to go back to uh, John chapter 15 quickly. Before Jesus tells the disciples that they're to expect persecution, he gives them some other commands first. Starting in verse uh, 9, it said, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abiding his love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, and if ye do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father have I made known to you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of my Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. So the, the thing that we can do for these people around the world is love them. We can love them with financial aid. We can love them with sending missionaries. We can love them with support. I know right now there's an effort to uh, get some radio broadcast into North Korea. They're actually setting up radio stations uh, in South Korea and off the coast trying to get Christian programming into North Korea for the believers that are there. You know, so that's one of the things that we can do for support. But the most important thing that you can do to support persecuted Christians around the world is to pray. We underestimate the power of prayer. In <clears throat> we talked about it in Sunday school. At one point in time, South Korea uh, was less than 1% Christian. And now they are the number two country for sending missionaries around the world, second behind the United States. Now, if you want to wrap that up in something that you can actually see, the population of that country is about the size of Florida and Texas put together. 
and they're number two in the world sending out missionaries right now. And at one time, they were 1% Christian. If you look at these top 10 lists right here, each one of those nations are less than 1% Christian. Could you imagine if prayer and revival broke out in 50, 75 years, Afghanistan, North Korea being number two and sending out missionaries around the world? It can happen, but it only happens with prayer. That's what happened. Uh, I believe it was the Pyongyang revival. Uh, they were having a prayer meeting, and church leaders, well, not really church leaders. They didn't have very many organized church, but leaders in that particular church began confessing and praying, and it swept the entire nation. And in less than 100 years, it completely turned the tide of the country. But I don't want to leave us in persecution. If you go back, I want to get in one more verse of 1 Peter. First Peter 4, 13 said, But rejoice! Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may shall be, you shall, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. One of these days our Lord's going to be coming back. If you want to see what that's going to look like, take a look at Revelation 19. It'll give his coming back. We're going to be able to partake in that. For those that have died martyrs, they're going to get a crown of life, according to Paul. So let's stay steadfast. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters. Help where we can. Most of all, let's hold the line until the Lord comes back, because what we do, what, what is done to us, and the scope of our lives is relatively small, but what we do for God and what we do in response to persecution, that's going to reverberate throughout eternity. So if you want to make a difference in your eternal life, stand firm for the Lord today. Does anybody have anything else to add? Do we have any prayer requests?